For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, this is going to be a little bit complicated, but this is a very important topic we need to work for. We need to work through because it gets to something that a lot of people want to see done, but it's a buzzword and there's a lot of technicalities to do it. I'm going to talk a little bit about marijuana, about cannabis, about THC, about regulation and a thing called Delta 8 and the difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9. Jessica Dobrinsky is joining us and she's going to explain it to us. Uh, she's with the Cardinal Institute out of West Virginia. She's based out of Pittsburgh, but for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against her. Jessica, how are you today? Good. How are you? Fantastic. This is going to get a little technical to start with, but we have to get a baseline of what we're talking about because the overarching debate in America is legalize, don't legalize, decriminalize, criminalize. The problem is once you get past that sloganeering, there's a lot of really in-depth technical stuff to how this stuff works, isn't it? Because even something that's legal, like THC, and as you're highlighting here, even law enforcement don't seem to have real good boundaries on what they are supposed to be and not supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, where do we start with this? Because we've seen the news breaking out of California now. We've got data from a couple of years of quote-unquote legalization. That's not going well. We know the war on drugs is not going well. Where do we even start with this? Because if we can't legalize it correctly and we can't decriminalize it correctly and we can't keep a criminal correctly, I don't even know where to start here. Do you have a better idea? Yeah, I think that a great place to start is looking back at the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, THC and CBD products were categorized as agricultural commodities. And this allowed different businesses and entities to go ahead and start creating these products. However, it never explicitly said things like Delta 8 or Delta 9 and therefore have created a lot of different legal uh, issues. Is it a legislative problem? Is it a legalese problem? Is it a lobbying problem? Why was this not more specifically fleshed out, whether it's a local law, a state law, whatever the case may be? Is it just la lazy legislating? Was it oversight? Because this is kind of a big deal. When, uh, we all remember the story last year, the truck driver that was hauling hemp, they wrecked that dude's entire life for a couple of months until they finally got it cleaned up. And it turned out he didn't do anything wrong. The police were wrong. If even the law enforcement, and, and I don't want to say they're all being malfeasant here. Some of them's probably honestly trying. If it's this complicated, is it the legislative problem? Is it law enforcement? Where's this problem coming from that they can't get specific about this sort of thing? Yeah, I think kind of all of those can be true in different ways. I think that one important thing about the 2018 Farm Bill is that it allowed for these agricultural commodities, but it never explicitly said that things like Delta 8 and Delta 9 
um, were permitted to be to be sold and things like that. However, from kind of the way that agricultural commodities are written, you can kind of infer that those are grouped under that. However, with that vague uh, language, states probably need to go in and clean it up just you know, based on how how they view that interpretation and therefore provide actual guidance to law enforcement on if they should handle the issue um, and, and what their role is. What's the difference? Because we, we hear the term Delta 8, Delta 9. What's the big deal? Because one of them is completely legal and the other one gets you in trouble. And when police are just going off, well, it smells like one thing. That's not much of a standard, but Start with the nomenclature so everybody's on the same page here. What is the actual difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9 and THC? Yeah, so as far as Delta 8 and Delta 9 is concerned, some states allow for both and others allow for Delta 8 but not Delta 9. And the differences um, there are the reactions that are caused by each. Um, Delta 8, from what I understand, is a little bit more mild um, in its contents, whereas Delta 9 has a stronger component of THC in it. Now, the other part of this is because smoke shops, um, there's still a lot of laws on the books about drug paraphernalia. And again, here's another term that needs to probably be defined a lot better than it is. You touched on this. Part of the problem here is legal smoke shops are selling THC. They're selling um, cannabis adjacent products that are legal or are being legalized, depending on the local laws. But they have other products. They'll have, you know, glass pipes, whatever the case may be. Part of what we're dealing with here is law enforcement has been trained for generations of where there's one, there's the other, right? So if there's drug paraphernalia, there's going to be drugs. Is this also a training problem? Is it a, a culture within law enforcement of trying to kind of de-learn what they've always been? Because you wrote about this. They're going in these shops and these shops have to remove this stuff. It's thousands of dollars of inventory. These are This is probably make or break for a retail store for something like this to happen. Is that part of the story here too? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think necessarily the full blame is on law enforcement in this issue of drug paraphernalia. Um, I think there is definitely an old school way of thought, but at the same time, a lot of states have these outdated laws on the books. And just by simply having a glass pipe, which can be used for multiple things, tobacco uh, being one of them, it, you know, it, it puts a lot of businesses in weird positions and creates kind of enemies out of law enforcement that shouldn't exist. Let's talk about some of those laws because they've tried to clean some of this up. You highlighted the 2018 uh, Farm Bill legalized, quote unquote, agricultural commodities. What that was meaning was things like hemp, like CBD, like THC. That was Delta 8, not the Delta 9 that we already got into the sticky wicket of that. But even in that bill, they didn't include the name of the cannabis based projects, such as the Delta 9, that should be illegal. So, again, even when they're trying to fix it, they're not really clearly differentiating here. Yeah, exactly. And one interesting thing, too, is that the Ninth Circuit back in May actually had a ruling on this exact issue. And they said that it was allowed to be sold, but they were allowed to exist, but they never really spoke to the uh, fact of interstate commerce. So, again, it's still, despite going to the courts, is having some gray areas. And again, not to beat up on law enforcement, because this isn't all their fault. But what happens is, is when they don't have specific guidance like that, they're always going to lean towards the crackdown side of the house, right? That's just their right. natural inclination on this. But now you're talking, you're not talking about, you know, illicit criminals or back alleys. You're talking about small business owner. We've all seen the smoke shop and the vape shop and the strip mall, right? That's who's getting cracked down on here. That's commerce. That's jobs. That's economic stuff, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what is the economy for this stuff? Because I don't think people realize how big this is. You touched on it. The CD, the CBD market. See, I even have trouble saying it. The CBD market sales are projected to be up to around 16 billion by 2026. That would be in line with what the e-cigarette industry is doing. Um, small business owners, you highlighted, I'm reading this from your piece, small business owners in North Carolina saw the store welcome its largest revenues from year to year sales of Delta 8 products ever. You just talked about the Ninth Circuit ruling in May. Where's this going? Is it going to continue to work its way through the courts? Um, do these shop owners have some legal recourse to try to fight this in court? What's going to be the future of this over the next coming years, you think? I think the deciding factor on where these nuances will be cleared up is actually going to be in state departments of agriculture. Um, they oversee a lot of this stuff and they hand down a lot of instructions to law enforcement. And by allowing them to have a little bit more control and ownership on these commodities will absolutely clear up some, some loose ends. Now, how is this overlapping with legalization efforts? So places like California, where they have some legalization, not as much as what prob people probably think it is, but it's highly regulated. You know, we've seen the headlines now. It, it's a mess. It's creating black markets. It's, it's, not, it's not going well. Let's just leave it at that. What kind of overlap does that go into trying to regulate the rest of the country where this stuff isn't legal? Because this just adds to the chaos, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, it's going to depend on each state. But I think one thing that legislatures should keep in mind is harm reduction and that harm reduction must first and foremost accept that drugs will never be completely gone. They will always exist no matter how much we want them to go away. And in order to kind of mitigate some of those harder drugs and and, you know, getting people off the things that can actually kill them. Marijuana is a really great way to do that. And so I think once people start to come away from this old school of thought and really consider that, I think it'll be far more popular than we realize. What what would be the catalyst to really start changing this in legislators? Um, is it going to be an event? Is it going to be some kind of data study? What do you think would change the current environment? Because it seems like it's just kind of inertia of not going anywhere right now. Yeah, I think it's hard to say because, as you mentioned, all of the data is really there. And we've been learning from doctors for quite some time now that this is really beneficial to a large group of people, everything from anxiety to more severe things like bipolar disorder. And again, we've seen studies that it helps people who are dealing with uh, severe illnesses like cancer as well. So honestly, I think Delta 8 and Delta 9 really are kind of the gateway to more acceptance in the public. And I think that's why these laws are so crucial to clear up. Yeah. Jessica Dabrinsky joining us on her tell. Going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to continue to talk about her piece. It's in counterpunch.org. We're going to link to it. A lot of links inside of that piece that you need to read through all of them as well. Going to talk about what people actually use this for. It's not just illicit drug use, mental health needs, health needs, and how the regulation and the laws need to adapt for those purposes as well. Jessica Dobrinsky joining us on Herd Tell as we continue right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Jessica Dobrinsky, Young Voices contributor. She's with the Cardinal Institute in my home state of West Virginia, although she lives in Pittsburgh. Don't tell anyone. Those two things don't usually go together, of course. Sorry we're a little salty over the pit game last week. Uh, Jessica, you, you wrote about it in your piece here. 
let's let's back up for a second. One of the reasons why people push for legalization, we we know the the social justice part of it. We know the criminal justice part of it. We know the war on drugs part on it. There's actually a lot of studies now, and you touch on it as well. A lot of people just want this as a self-medicating option for good, valid reasons, uh, mental health reasons, depression, pain management. Is that part of this that we should probably be paying up more as like, hey, we have healthcare costs, we've got opioid addictions, things like that. This is something that could help if it's in a regulated and controlled way. Would that be a better way of approaching it than just talking about the law enforcement side of this or the culture war side of this, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And as I said in my piece, there's a very valid concern for a lot of business owners, but there's also a valid concern for consumers. Now, there are probably plenty of people that use it recreationally, but for those who maybe don't have health insurance or can't get a medical marijuana card, maybe they decided to dabble in this instead to really see if this could help their issues. And we've seen from multiple different research studies that plenty of people are actually using this to mitigate some of those mental health concerns. You don't want people just going off willy nilly with this stuff. Um, but you know, again, why can't they just write some plain language stuff like, you know, Hey, your doctor can prescribe this or your mental health care provider can prescribe this. We know the scheduling debate, which is a little bit different, but it fall, it kind of overlaps the Delta eight Delta nine thing you're touching on. Is it addressing the scheduling? Is it something that should be pushed through the healthcare side of a healthcare reform What's the best avenue to attack it when it comes to things like this? Because, you know, you even got people like the VA advocates are saying, hey, this could help our mental health folks with things like PTSD. You have people, uh, cancer patients and others like, hey, this is a pain management thing. So we can stop giving them these opioids that are causing all these other problems. What's the avenue to talk about this better? Because until you change the conversation, you're probably not going to get any traction on it. What's a better way to have the conversation, do you think? Yeah, again, I think starting with the farm bill and clearing up that language is a great start because right now with unclear language and as we're seeing with law enforcement, it's being interpreted as something very legal and something we're still not allowed to do. Um, so allowing that language to be cleared up and see that it's a valid business, it's a valid product, um, will definitely start to make the changes. And then from there, we can talk about scheduling. Now, of course, the Farm Bill is a federal piece of legislation. Part of this is because the states all have their different way of dealing with it. Some of that's baked into our system. You're always going to have different laws state to state. Would it be more beneficial to do some kind of an amendment or, or fix the Farm Bill? They could pass, you know, you know, a one or two page fix for something like this. Just clean up language. They do that all the time. Yeah, again, clearing up those nuances is really just, I think, the perfect start. And then from there, I think, is when state legislatures can start to act on it, whether they want to expand whatever the, the federal government decides it, those things fall under or whether they want to keep it a little bit more strict. Yeah. When you started looking at this, did you look at the when you look at the business side of this? Do we need to tell the people story of this more? Because, you know, like we've we've been talking, we've been talking about Delta 8 and Delta 9. These are heavy terms. This is terminology. We talk stats. We talk mental health care. When you just sat down to write about this, you go across the human stories, right? You go across the businesses that are in trouble. Talk about those for a minute, because sometimes I think we get too too wonky with our policy. Talk about some of those personal stories that kind of put a face on this sort of a topic. Yeah, so uh, two states, Kentucky and Georgia, were the most recent to to have issues with this. And one of the shop owners said that it felt like it was a big a big raid, and that they were having so many drugs, and it you know it was a lot bigger of a deal than it was. Um, and then another shop owner received a letter saying that they were responsible for a, 
illicit substances that were um, causing illness or or death to children. And so it's a lot of um, pointing fingers without a whole lot of conversation. And so it's causing a lot of business owners, again, to really be hurt by these circumstances. Yeah. And one of my things has always been is we should have a criminal justice system that doesn't create more criminals if we can help it. And that seems to be what we're doing here. Um, Jessica Dabrinsky joining us. What got you on this topic? Because, you know, you don't you don't accidentally Google Delta 8 and Delta 9 variants of CVC, right? What is it that hits you about this as you do your research, as you work with things like Cardinal Institute and Young Voices and you're, you know, you're a freedom loving person? What sucks you into a topic like this of like this needs to be addressed? Yeah, so unfortunately, West Virginia, despite all of the good things about our state, are known for a lot of bad things, one of them being the opioid epidemic. So when I saw that Kentucky was starting to change these, try to change these laws and enforce things that I knew could actually help people get off of opioids, I started to perk my ears up a little bit and research the topic a little bit more. And that's when I realized there, again, are a lot of those nuances that definitely need to be cleared up for people like uh, West Virginians. I've asked this question before, Jessica Dabrinsky joining us. Harm reduction is a tough sell to the average person because to them it sounds like, oh, well, you're excusing criminality or you're excusing addiction or you're excusing everything. It, it's a tough sell because how do we tell people like, look, when you're dealing with addiction, when you're dealing with drug use, when you're dealing with opioids, you got to give people an intermediate step. They're not going to go from zero to 100. Talk about the harm reduction piece because you you put it in your piece on this on purpose. Because the harm reduction, that's the science part of this, of like, look, there's science, there's research that harm reduction, it's not a great thing. It's not even a good thing. You could argue it's a bad thing, but it's a lot less bad than this other thing. And that's the intermediate step we need. Talk about that for a minute, because I think harm reduction is something we have a hard time talking about it, but that's really going to be the key to a lot of this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a 2021 study um, actually said that majority of people um, that we're using Delta-8, we're using it for me mental health purposes. And so obviously with a lot of opioid use, it, it starts with mental health issues that, that can't be mitigated or a lot of feelings of hopelessness and such too. So if these are able to mitigate mental health issues, then of course it's going to help people get off of opioids as well. What can people do about this? Like there's the cliche, you know, call your senator, call your congressman, call your, you know, your legislator or your state senator or whatever the case may be. That's all well and good. How should people be discussing? Let, let's just start with something basic. When they talk about it on social media, just saying legalize it, that doesn't really tell anybody anything. What's a way that folks could talk about this in a productive way on their social media to kind of advance the conversation a little bit, do you think? I think the number one thing is open dialogue. I think a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum, when they hear the opposition talk about this issue, whether it's pro or against, start to get a little bit defensive. And I think there are valid concerns for, for both sides, contrary to what a lot of people are willing to think. Um, and I think from there, looking at the science behind things, how it can actually help people, um, I think it will kind of break a lot of those stigmas because for a long time, we've kind of conflated marijuana use to something as crazy as heroin. Um, and that's just simply <laughs> nonsensical. So I think from from there, we can start to really help people. All right back where we started. It's a complicated topic. It's a tough topic. 
what's the new course of action? Is it going to be legislative? Is it going to be legal action? Is it a mixture of the both? If it's a mixture, what's the ratio? Where, where do we go from here? Do you think for people that really care about this issue and want to see some, you know, some kind of progress on it that's positive? Yeah, I think if legislatures or states want to do something about it tomorrow, the first thing that they can do is start to clear up their own state language and to whether say that if Delta 9 or Delta 8 is included or not until properly allow these different uh, powers to go to their Department of Agriculture. How amazing is it that we have this much problems where you have people, you know, unjustly getting arrested because the language in a bill isn't just perfect? I mean, isn't there kind of a little bit of a lesson there of like, you know, we talk about all the culture war stuff and we talk about the political wars and we talk about the buzzword. You really do have to do the nuts and bolts of legislating to make government work. Is is that kind of the lesson here of like, hey, we really need to pay attention to what our legislators are doing on the boring stuff that doesn't trend and doesn't show up on our, you know, Facebooks and Twitter feeds? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's abundantly clear, too, for these issues that they think nobody cares about or are just minor things, is that every single piece of legislation needs to be fine-tuned and ensure that the intent is there. Yeah, especially when it's regulations that have the full weight and force of law behind it, where people can go to jail, lose their livelihoods, and lose their businesses. Uh, Jessica Dobrinsky, this is great stuff. It's a tough topic, but you wrote about it really, really well. We're going to link to the whole piece. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. Like we always say, she's got a lot of links in there, too. All that is data and stats. She's got that all sourced. Make sure you read through that as well. Uh, we'll have you back on again because this isn't going away anytime soon. We, Like we said, the California stuff's a mess, so they're probably going to re-regulate that, and God knows where that goes. Till we get you back on the show, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, your social media, what you've got going on with Cardinal Institute and with Young Voices till we see you again on Hertel. Yeah, so my Twitter is JL Dobrinsky. Uh, last name is D-O-B-R-I-N-S-K-Y. <laughs> Many people get that uh, confused with an I. But other than uh, some of my stuff on uh, drug paraphernalia, I also focus on healthcare of certificate of need. So you can find my paper as well on that at thecardinalinstitute.com. Yep, she does good work. We're going to link to all that. You can also find her on the Young Voices page. She does great work. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors that we love to have on, Jessica Dobrinsky. We appreciate you so much. Best of luck surviving Pittsburgh. And we'll talk again real soon, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I know we've been talking about energy policy a lot. We've been talking about it in Europe. We've been talking about it nationwide. Let's talk about a specific locality, North Carolina, an area I'm very familiar with, because I think there's some lessons here for us to learn from everywhere else by talking to Elijah Gullett, another great Young Voices uh, contributor. Elijah, great to see you today. Thank you, sir, for having some time for us. Thank you for having me on today. Uh, appreciate you being here Let, let's start a little big picture because we've been covering this it seems like at least once or twice a week we're talking energy policy right now it's not just gas though it's not just electrical generation i think we're, we're doing a little force for the trees thing here where we keep going into one little part of this and losing the entire big picture because you know with our friends from germany last week germany and the eu by extension having terrible issues it's because of the policies that led up to it not just the events the policies they had in place did not meet the events correctly 
it feels like America's doing the same problem where our previous policies aren't meeting the current events. We can't fix it for the back end of it. Sure feels like we're not learning any lessons in the present, and we're just going to make this worse as we go down the road. Is that how it feels to you, too? Definitely so. Um, I think a lot of the problems with... Sorry, I'm going to repeat that. Um, yes, definitely. I think we have sort of used a very short-term uh, perspective on energy policy, energy policy in this country, where we focus on what looks good, what's good, to, uh, what makes us seem progressive, or like we're trying to pursue pursue the, some higher uh, environmental goal, and that makes complete sense. But at the same time, we need to be thinking in the long term. What happens when these sort of uh, massive events like Russia invading Ukraine happen that will inevitably have uh, effects on the rest of the world's energy? What happens when we have environmental events that cause blackouts or make it difficult for us to get energy to people? Uh, so thinking sort of long term is definitely necessary here. And we are already seeing California's warning about energy shortfalls. We know what happened in Texas last year and they're warning it may happen again. We know there's not enough, the grid's not going to hold up. We just know that right now. We need more power generation. We have reduced fossil fuels. We've closed coal plants and these sort of things. We're trying to step up renewable energy, which is a finding in and of itself. Just the abject facts on the ground, there's a gap in energy production for this country because we're growing, because we don't have enough energy. Why don't we ever start with that part of the argument? It seems like we're doing this backwards where we're talking about policy stuff of what we want to happen instead of starting with, we need X amount of energy right now. How do we get it? Does that feel like the conversation is inverse to you? Because that's how it feels to me as we've covered this over and over again, is everybody's starting with, well, this is what we want to happen. Energy, you, you either got it or you don't. Shouldn't we start with that? It's like, hey, we need X amount of energy and we need it right now. Yeah, definitely. I think it's because who are pushing the conversation, who are doing the policy work, are often disconnected from what the average person experiences on the ground. The average person on the ground is experiencing, you know, rising energy costs that they get um, for their electricity bills, their gas-powered bills. Every month, they're seeing still pretty high gas prices at the pump. Um, and I think people outside of, you know, middle America, regular Americans' lives aren't really feeling those effects as much. And so they can think in these bigger theoretical terms, but they're ignoring what we need now to make people's lives better. Yeah, you were writing a Carolina Journal about nuclear power. We know there's a movement where people are taking a second look at it. Some of the, you know, not the stereotype, but, you know, the previous generation, the boomers and them that really had an aversion to nuclear, they're kind of maybe softening and this new generation doesn't have the same bugaboos but people are taking a second look at nuclear even the green parties in europe are mm -hmm. starting to take a second look at nuclear talk about why folks push nuclear i'm one of them so i'm biased i'll put that on the table it's not just because it's a good idea there's practical parts to this like we just talked about it an energy source it's a clean energy source it's got a lot of upfront costs so it's not perfect but when you're talking about grids and you're talking about the issues we're having, consistent long-term energy generation, there's just nothing quite as good as nuclear that we have in the arsenal right now, is there? Definitely not. I mean, it's not perfect. Like you said, there's a lot of upfront costs. It's not always economical, especially with large power plants. But it is some of the things that made coal, coal gas so uh, convenient and uh, sustainable, not environmentally, but sort of 
you know, always having a consistent source of energy available, and also the goals that we have with renewable energy. It's a clean energy source. It produces it's zero carbon emissions. It's not just the carbon emissions, though, is it? Because, again, let's just stay on the practical level, because I think we get into the policy and the buzzwords too much, and we kind of lose sight of this. you got to put electricity in people's homes. It's Mm -hmm. not just that it's clean energy. It's consistent, and it's clean. And you need those two things together because when you're talking about environmental policies, one of the beasts, and I think it's a legitimate criticism of new renewable energy is like, look, the windmills don't always turn. The sun doesn't always shine for solar. You, they're good technologies, but energy has to be consistent and energy policy has to be consistent. And if you're not going to burn fossil fuels, which we know that can be consistent because that's the supply chain for the last 150 years in this country. This is the route to go. Talk about the practical application of nuclear power. You know, things like cost, things like just getting it generated. This sort of things is the part we don't seem to talk about very much, does it? Yes. And a lot of the problem with energy and nuclear energy production is rooted in federal uh, bureaucracy, to be frank. Uh, The Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission has recently been... uh, helping to close down or try to push for the closing down of nuclear plants in states like Florida. Thankfully, North Carolina still has three nuclear plants that are actively running that already employ people. It is already providing about a third of energy production in North Carolina at this moment. And it's already proving to be a consistent source. If we can amp that up, especially in light of Roy Cooper's uh, and the uh, North Carolina House's recent bill, uh, HB 951. Uh, This would be a great opportunity for us to meet both the needs of regular North Carolinians and meet our carbon emission goals. Now, we know there is political uh, parts to this. North Carolina is a little unique. It is very much a battleground kind of state politically. You have a Democratic governor. You have a uh, Republican um, legislature. Little less, it's not the supermajority it was a few years ago, but still strongly Republican. Uh, This is a state that Donald Trump won. This is a state with a too close to call Senate race right now. This is a battleground state by any definition of the word. Should we be looking at it, though, and pointing to things like California keeping Diablo Diablo Canyon open? That's one of the most progressive states in the country. And they're even saying, look, we've got to go this route. Can we use those kind of examples to try to cut through some of the some of the partisanship here and go, look, libertarian, conservative, progressive, purple hippopotamus, you need electricity in your house. And this is the way we need to go. Yes, definitely. I mean, California uh, recent work with Diablo Canyon is a perfect example of this because it shows that even in a state where which was literally where anti-nuclear movements were born in the United States are still being a, are frankly being forced to by the realities on the ground to allow and uh, continue to provide nuclear energy. And this can provide as a source of this, sorry, over that point. This can be a great um, point in North Carolina that we don't want to end up on the same route that California is where they're trying to, where they have to make these really kind, these hard decisions about what they keep open. We can keep being on this pro nuclear route that we've already and continue to increase production of that to meet these goals that we've set out in HB 951 without making the types of hard compromises that California has. What about, again, a state like North Carolina? This is an opposite coast. 
it's a coastal area. People in the coastal areas, which are growing fast, Brunswick County is one of the fastest growing counties in the entire country. Raleigh Durham is one of the fastest growing urban areas in the country. These are people that, whether they're conservative or progressive, are also very environmentally conscious. We see that down in Wilmington, where I where this radio program goes out. Even the conservative folks are more environmentally conscious than others because they live in you know they live in a very amazing place with the Carolina coastline. How do we pitch environment? Because to so many on the right, environmentalism has become a bad word. But this kind of environmentalism with nuclear power and clean energy and consistent energy, we should be able to pitch that to the conservation part of the right wing. And they should just fit that like a glove. How do we use that terminology and meld it? Because I think sometimes the nomenclature gets in our own way of this conversation, doesn't it? It definitely does. And there's great work being done on this from organizations like the American Conservation Coalition uh, that are working to uh, who are working with Republicans to develop conservative climate policies um, and use language that makes more sense to conservatives and Republican voters on environmental issues. And I think nuclear energy, once again, is this great bridge between environmentalists and the conservative movement, because you can also sort of bring in this economic perspective. This is a great way to create jobs, create infrastructure, and uh, for you, especially for the state of North Carolina to remain this incredibly economically uh, growing state. Yeah, we're talking to Elijah Gallup. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue to talk about energy, his piece in North Carolina. It's also got an op-ed out about clean energy transition, how to make it a little bit easier. And the problem ain't us and the problem ain't the media. Once again, that R word regulation, it's all in the details how these sort of things work. Elijah Gallup continues to join us on Hertel right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, we're back with Elijah Gullett on Herd Tell. That's him. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Glad you're sticking with us. We're talking energy uh, once again. Again, I think just about at least once a week for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about energy with a guest. But it's that important because everybody uses it. And it's one of the big costs that everybody has because your electric bill, especially if you live, you know, places like North Carolina where you have a hot summer, that's one of your major expenses after your house and your car. That's probably the next biggest thing you pay. How do we, we talk the political, we talk the policy. Economically, though, this has a great impact. That's why everybody's talking about energy. That's why Europe's in a panic right now with winter coming and, and their fuel bills are going through. And we just talked to our German friends where they're stealing fire from Germany, which I can't imagine. Talk about the economic side of this, because let's just be real. Let's be grown folk here. People don't pay attention to economic issues unless it starts to hurt or affect them, right? Energy policy is definitely affecting people. We saw the gas prices over the summer. That's kind of subsiding a little bit. But winter prices, rolling blackouts, this stuff gets people politically engaged in a great big hurry, don't it? Definitely so. Um, and I think, you know, a really idealistic form of energy policy is only going to make that worse. Focusing on sort of 
exclusively on these bigger goals that we have in regards to carbon emissions. As great as those goals are and as much as we do need to meet them, we can't ignore the facts on the ground. We can't ignore the day-to-day needs of Americans and regular people. We can't ignore the fact that people need to light their homes, be able to cook dinner, you know, do the basic drive to work, all the basic things that we do on a day-to-day basis. One of those day-to-day basis things, though, um, is <laughs> we've been covering on our show. I, I call it governing by inertia. The bureaucratic state just keeps rolling along regardless of what we do. And it does a day-to-day whether we pay attention to it or don't. We pay attention to it during things like COVID because all of a sudden we realize how regulation works. You were writing and you wrote a piece in the center square. We'll link to this and his other piece. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself and share it. You wrote about the regulation of energy. We know the Texas blackout that came because of regulation. We know the California threat of blackouts. A lot of that has to do with regulation. Talk about regulation because that's the piece of this that people don't really see, but they feel it. But there's a disconnect there, isn't there, where folks aren't putting those two things together too often. Yeah. So in my article, I focus on the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, This is a 1970s legislation that basically allows um, any activist group to use the courts to stop projects that they believe might be damaging. Now, the law has has sometimes produced outcomes than otherwise. It's been able to prevent genuinely polluting or dangerous development in residential neighborhoods. But at the same time, it has been used to block energy, including things like nuclear. Uh, and these types of regulations, I think, made sense in one part, in one you know time in our history, but make less sense now when we have these better technologies where, you know, we need clean energy, we need nuclear energy, we also need solar and wind that are also being blocked by things like NEPA. Um, and these laws desperately need to be reformed so we can do the kinds of energy production that we're gonna need to both meet people's day-to-day needs with energy and also meet our own carbon goals. And you talked about it in your other piece on nuclear power in North Carolina at the Colorado Journal, but it applies to this piece as well and applies to this whole conversation. It's not that we don't want renewable energy. Energy needs to be like a lot of other complex problems. Your your pet thing isn't going to solve the entirety of the problem. And you wrote about it in your language, and I think it's the right terminology. You talk about this needs to be an all of the above approach. Well, what hinders all of the above is regulation, right? Oftentimes, yes. Um, So like I mentioned, you know, laws like NEPA as well as some other federal regulations and state level NEPAs often are in the way of us doing, like I said, the clean energy production that we need. Uh, They're used to block uh, both solar, wind, natural gas, and nuclear all the time. Uh, And if we want to do an all of the above approach, which I believe we need in order to meet both basic human needs and environmental goals, we're going to need to loosen up some of these things or to at least reform these types of regulations to meet modern day needs. These are outdated regulations. They desperately need reform. Now, you're a UNC Chapel Hill guy. Uh, for the purposes of this conversation, we're not going to hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> however, um, talk about how this is being discussed by the current generation coming up through college, because like you said, the anti-nuclear stuff really started on college campuses in the 60s and 70s. Not, for, not, And to be fair to them, not for ungood reason. The Cold War, people were scared. 
you had some events that, you know, scared people. I get that. So, you know, I don't want to just overly bash them. People are products of their times. What's the current rising generation? Because it does feel like even progressive folks, even environmental folks, there seems to be a change here. You were on UNC's college campus. You're still plugged into that community. Is that real or is that just something in the media? I think that shift you're noticing is definitely real. Uh, so as a student at UNC, I took quite a lot of environmental policy and energy policy classes. And it was really interesting that you'd have a range of students, regardless of their ideological positions, recognize that nuclear was a good thing, that nuclear was clean energy, we needed more of it, and it was a great way to meet both the basic needs that I mentioned, as well as a lot of our clean energy goals. Uh, I think that anti-nuclear thing was mostly the result of a very specific type of very, let's just say boomer uh, activism from the 60s and 70s. And it probably doesn't hold as much anymore. And I think modern day environmental groups need to basically kind of get up with the times, you know? I don't think young people are motivated by anti-nuclear things anymore. I I find, you tell me, because we're I'm a little bit older than you, so we're different generations a little bit. Um, I think environmentalism, and I know that word's gotten moved and climate change and green policy and conservation, you know, the way I was raised rural in West Virginia, conservation is a big deal because we want to keep our state pristine and grew up in the woods and things like this. Whatever terminology you want to put on it, I think this is the one issue that I see people getting more and more heterodox on. I see more and more crossover on it. I already mentioned in Wilmington, you get people that are, you know, even really conservative people, they, they're really touchy on environmental issues. You see progressive people that, you know, maybe they're get real interested in school choice issues after COVID. I think there's a real chance to do some bipartisan stuff on environmentalism if we go past the buzzwords and we get to what we all want, which is a nicer place to live with better energy options. And we take care of both, you know, the environment and we conserve it for future generations, but we also take care of ourselves economically. I think those things can all go together. Give me a couple things language wise, because a lot of this is going to be how we discuss it on social media. Let's be honest amongst ourselves. It's not going to be the policy and the white paper and the wonky stuff. How should people be talking about this to each other, just common folks to push the ball forward on things like conservation and environmentalism? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we can talk about preserving American landscapes. I think this is something we can all agree on. All of us want to see, you know, America is this large, beautiful country with lots of natural land that's barely touched by people. I think all of us can agree that this is something we all care about. Even if we disagree on the specifics of policy, none of us want us to, you know, destroy our natural national parks or our, um, you know, Smoky Mountains or anything like that. Uh, so I think talking about it in terms of American land and preserving American land is something we can all agree on. Um, I think, and also kind of brings in this patriotic aspect. Uh, I also think talking about it in terms of economic growth or jobs or uh, things like that is a really good opportunity. The way that in, uh, environmental policies like green energy production and battery production and environment and electric vehicles e-bikes or anything like this can bring new jobs into our community. This is another great opportunity for us to, I think, reach across the aisle for people who care more about the environmental stuff and people who care more about the economic stuff. All right, so the, the side part of that, Elijah Gullick continues to join us, is that's what we do in our language. We have to put that into black and white somewhere. 
I think one other piece of this that's kind of been missing because I, you know, I just sit here and talk about this stuff, but I talk to knowledgeable people like you about it. Something I've noticed is I think we forget that there's multiple layers of government here. You mentioned it and you've mentioned it in your advocacy and some of the stuff you write in, though. There's really three different layers to this to advance. There's the federal stuff that everybody pays attention to because we have a nationalized media. There's a lot of things local and state level that people could get involved in, especially at the local level, because environmental stuff, those, those meetings are usually not as well attended as like the school board riots we've been seeing. And I'm using that a little facetiously. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of things local level you can do environmentally and for the and for conservation and people just don't take advantage of it. There's stuff at the state level you can do. We need all three of those things looking and firing on all cylinders for this. And part of that is engagement with folks doing things at a local level. And that doesn't seem to be getting discussed as much, does it? Yeah, for sure. I think in a lot of ways, we need to renew this idea, sort of an old school environmental idea that planting trees and taking care of your backyard matters a lot and can make a really big difference. So trees are a major uh, source for carbon sequestration. And, uh, you know, even just getting your friends together, cleaning up a park, planting some trees, learning about your natural environment and what's happening around you, all of that can make a difference. And I think it's something that gets lost a lot of times in the modern environmental movement. So you're saying all that Arbor Day tree planting we did back in the 80s and 90s was not for naught? I mean, yeah, definitely. <laughs> we need more of that. Is that uh, still I think a thing? It, do they still do that? I think some organizations do. I know a few uh, organizations that still do that kind of work. So, yeah. That was a big thing when I was a kid. We every you know, you had to go out and plant trees and such. But and we had plenty of trees where I grew up in West Virginia. Trust me. But still, uh, Elijah Gala joining us, having a little fun with it. Uh, one more thing on this environmental thing. Um, we use North Carolina's example. We talked about California. That's a battleground state, and that's a deep blue state. We have a lot of deep red states, and an environmentalism, like we said, is kind of a dirty word. We 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 already talked about this a little bit, but put a political spin on it because. It's not going to be a hot button issue because the economy and, of course, we got other political things going on. What would you like to see from some politicians on the right that would start showing like, hey, you can not only talk about this, but you could talk about it in a way of talking about responsible government and government accountability and job creation and all these other auxiliary issues? How would you like to see the right kind of address this better as they start campaigning over the next couple of cycles? Yeah, so I think the first one is sort of a lot of those permitting reforms, those regulations I was talking about before. I think this is something that both the left and the right can really work together on, is seeing the way that a lot of the regulations we have in place are inhibiting the kinds of environmental goals we want to meet, as well as our economic goals. They're also making it harder to get uh, energy production jobs happening on the ground. And I think this would be one really good tool that a lot of uh, Republicans in deep red states could use to talk about and also reach across the aisle. I think another topic that um, Republicans could be working on right now would be on uh, green energy production. This kind of goes in hand with the regulation end, but talking more about how we can get good jobs in this country, how we can incentivize the market to produce green energy in this country in our own without having to depend on Saudi Arabia or Russia or other countries for uh, fuel or anything that we currently do. Yeah, Elijah Gallet, outstanding information on energy. Uh, you're new to the program, but you're a friend. We will have you back. But friends hold friends accountable, so I have to point out something to you. On your Twitter feed, on August the 30th, you wrote, and I quote, everyone I know woke up exhausted today. 
which I think was socially engineered by Starbucks for pumpkin spice latte day. Elijah Gollett, defend your tweet. <laughs> I literally, everyone I work with and everyone I was talking to that, that day was like literally exhausted. And for me, at least, it definitely incentivized me to go get coffee because that was the day that they dropped like all their fall drinks or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm already exhausted. I need, I desperately need more caffeine. I guess I might as well go get one. It's hap It's right there. It's right across from my house. I'll just do go do it. Yeah, I'm. Of course, I can't drink coffee if I want to, but I like to poke the coffee drinkers. And of course, I've got teen girls, and they always want to go to Starbucks for school. But I, we were joking that there's a there's two Americas. There's the America that summer ends sometime in the middle of September, and then there's summer ends that when they bring out all the pumpkin spice and school starts. That's when summer actually ends. Like when I went in Harris Teeter and they reel out the entire palette of pumpkin spice Cheerios, I was like, up, oh, summer's over. And then school starts. <laughs> That's the real break for me. What about you? <laughs> I'm definitely in that category. I like fall way more than summer. I'm. I, I want it to happen sooner rather than later. So I, I am a fall guy. I I don't even like wearing shorts. I like a little bit of chilly weather. Great football. Football's back. I love fall, man. Fall's the best for me. Of course, I grew up in West Virginia, so the, the, that leaf change. If you've never lived where it's just a blanket of green, and then all of a sudden you get all the collars, it's it's absolutely amazing. Elijah Gallett, really have enjoyed this. Uh, we're going to have you back, but until folks get you on Hertel again, let them know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yep. So you can follow me at Market Urbanists on Twitter.com. Uh, you can also see my work uh, with the American Conservation Coalition, where I'm a branch leader for the Raleigh Durham area. Yep, which is a darn fine place to be in the fall. Summer, not so much. But Raleigh-Durham in the fall, I'm getting ready to spend some time in Durham here this 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 fall, but it's not going to be pleasant, unfortunately. But uh, great city in the fall if you've never had a chance to visit it. Uh, Elijah, great stuff. Really appreciate the conversation. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.